Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Cameron Schilling, uh, an attorney at uh, McLean. And a little bit about Cameron's background. Uh, he founded and he's the chair of McLean Middleton's Privacy and Information Security Group. Uh, he's been an attorney for over 20 years. He's been involved in you know, many commercial matters, uh, data security, technology, employment, et cetera. Um, so Cameron, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, you had an extensive bio. I didn't want to, you know, go on and on and on. I wanted to talk to you about what the uh, the latest and greatest is that you're working on in the legal sphere. So uh, can you give listeners an idea of what that is? Absolutely. Um, my number one area of activity these days is performing risk assessments for companies that are looking to come into compliance with either U.S. security law or U.S. or international privacy law. In particular, I've done a lot of work surrounding uh, a European law called the General Data Privacy Regulation in the European Union, um, mm. but also just a lot uh, of compliance around U.S. security law. So what are the main forces that are acting right now that you have to uh, be concerned with or clients are having issues with? Sure. Well, so the the main motivator of this activity really is companies becoming more and more aware of the preventative measures that they either have to or should take to prevent the loss or theft of information um, or to protect people's privacy. And so, you know, that's been uh, really spurned on by recent breaches that have garnered a lot of publicity, including the Equifax breach and going back to breaches like Anthem and Yahoo. So companies are paying attention to breach uh, and and seeing that they need to do something to avoid being a victim. And, and companies are also paying attention to the heavy regulatory activity in the area of security and privacy, particularly the heavy regulatory activity in the East, if you're on the East Coast of the Massachusetts and New York Attorneys General. Uh, if you're on the West Coast, it's principally the California Attorney General. And then um, some, some of the federal regulatory actors like the SEC, um, the FTC, and the Department of Health and Human Services. So really it's been breach and regulatory activity that have been prime prime motivators for companies to get going on this type of stuff. Well, in terms of breaches, like you said, the Equifax breach, you know, it seems like this stuff happens, massive amounts of data are exposed and then we never hear anything again. I mean, do, do any of these companies, are they held accountable or is it just the the small ones that are kind of defenseless legally or, you know, what's going to happen? For instance, with the Equifax breach, is it just, just going to go nowhere and that's it? Or what's going on with it? No, I I think that both companies, both big and small and medium-sized, face ramifications from breach. With Equifax, you know, almost immediately after it happened, there were lawsuits filed, including in Massachusetts. We just kind of don't hear about them on the consumer side because they go very slowly. And mm -hmm. unless major events happen in those suits, they tend not to be newsworthy. Um, and then perhaps a year, year and a half, or two years down the road, there'll be a settlement, and and maybe that will be an item of interest or not. 
Um, so usually it's not, it doesn't garner as much news as the original breach does. But, you know, big and small companies all the times are facing regulatory audits and fines and penalties. Um, it's just that these, these things, again, don't garner a lot of media attention. Pretty, I think it's pretty standard now to expect that if you have a major breach um, in either Massachusetts, New York, or California, that you're going to see a regulatory audit, which involves um, time and fees and expenses, and a fine or penalty, all of which is going to run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars for both small and medium-sized companies. Well, an interesting question is with everything being well, not everything, but a lot of things being online, uh, what constitutes you being in New York or California or Massachusetts, for instance? Is That's it where a great your activity question. is, where your customers are? Yeah. It's absolutely where your customers are, or more pointedly, it's where the individuals are who you have information about. So we live in a world without boundaries now, and companies in... Uh, where I'm in, in New Hampshire, or uh, where I work a lot in New York, Massachusetts, California, Minnesota, all over the place, um, we all have information about customers in different states, in different countries. Uh, and so we're responsible to comply with the laws of those states and countries um, with respect to those individuals. That's just how those particular laws tend to be written. Hmm. So how is a, a company that, let's say you have an e-commerce site, you know, and you're, I don't know, processing credit card transactions, consumer data. How are you supposed to develop a policy to deal with people in, uh, you know, 50 different states, for instance? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way we do it with our clients is you really work towards an industry best practice type of policy procedures and the like. So um, if you just looked at the laws of one, five, 10, or 50 different states, you might get confused and cross-eyed with the varying regulations. But if, if you can amalgamate them all, which we do, um, and work towards an industry best practice, you just uh, work your data security or privacy standards to that, you know, what we consider best in the industry. Also, also there are a couple of different industry standards that are not state laws. Uh, but that are they're really good industry standards that we data security professionals use when we are working with a company. A couple of the better known ones um, are uh, the cybersecurity framework of an entity called NIST, the National Institute Standards Technology Board. I might not be getting that exactly right, but it's called NIST. There's another one um, that is promulgated by uh, the ISO organizational organization, International Standards Organization. It's called ISO 27000. So there are these industry standards that kind of amalgamate what best practices are, and that's really where we're moving clients. We, when we work with clients, we're not doing data security in, in, in line with just compliance. We're not looking just to be in compliance with the rule or with the law. We're really looking to move them to a data security posture that makes them a less vulnerable entity. So, you know, even if there weren't a rule on a particular area, if we can move them to a more safe environment, if we can provide them with better security, um, that's really where we're, where we're moving the client. So what are some best practices for um, for people that operate, you know, with customers in multiple states or even countries? 
Sure. Um, well, the the best practice is first for the company really to conduct a a comprehensive risk assessment. Uh, the company needs to find out you know, hey, what information do we collect about customers or potential customers or vendors or our employees? Oftentimes, a company has no idea the true breadth of the information that it collects, where it's collecting it, who has it, where it's housed, um, so on and so forth. So the first step in a risk assessment is to figure out, you know, hey, what information do we get um, and uh, about whom? And then to follow that information, really drill down through the entity and follow that information through its life cycle to see, you know, how do we get it in? Where do we store it? Um, who has access to it? How do we push it around internally? How do we distribute it externally? Uh, do we give it to third-party vendors? Do we store it? You really drill down through the information looking for vulnerabilities. That's the first step for any entity to move towards uh, a better data security posture is to conduct this risk assessment. And if I, if I could do nothing else for a company, it would be to get them through the risk assessment. So at the very least, they know what the vulnerabilities are and they can start chipping, chipping away. That's really step one in this four-step process. Do a risk assessment and identify your vulnerabilities so that you can start making yourself a, a more secure company. What about... Uh... I mean, what what regulatory issues on the horizon could you know really shake things up? I mean, for instance, GDPR. You know, it's in Europe. Here in the U.S., you may think, ah, it doesn't apply to us. Does it? You know, what do you see that's happening that's making things change? Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things that are making things change. First of all, although GDPR is a European law, it does apply to U.S. companies. Um, and many U.S. companies are gonna, are complying with it or have to comply with it because um, it generally covers entities that are providing goods or services to European residents in the EU, and a lot of comp a lot of American companies certainly do that. Um, and there are other ways to become subject to the GDPR as well as an American company. So those foreign laws are definitely having an impact in the United States. Can Canada also has a very aggressive privacy law. Um, that's called PEPIDA, and that applies uh, to, to U.S. companies that gather information about Canadian residents. So foreign law and international law is going to be a big driver um, in the United States. Also, also um, the next biggest driver, or perhaps even a bigger driver for U.S. companies, is still the states. It's true that as a, as a general rule, we are probably not in the United States going to have a federal information privacy or security law. It's just been very difficult for the Congress to address this in light of a lot of political factors. But the states don't have the same problem. And so we get a lot of state regulations um, like the Massachusetts privacy law or the California privacy law, and there have been a whole number of other states. We now have about 20% of the country that have adopted some sort of law that requires businesses to proactively protect information. So states are adopting these laws, and then states' attorneys general come in and enforce the law, and they enforce it across state lines. And so they're they're really moving companies down the spectrum towards compliance because um, because we have such an international economy, you know, companies really are having to comply with best practices just so they can come into compliance with the, the state, state laws. So that I, I see that I see that still being the driving factor in this industry for the next 
five years at least. The other thing is, you know, as as bigger companies start to become um, subject to these laws, whether or not you have a big company that's subject to HIPAA or a big company that's subject to GDPR or um, a New York company or Massachusetts company or California companies, what they do is they pass the responsibility down the line. So if one of these companies is going to enter a contract with a vendor in another state to do work for that big company, oftentimes they're going to enter into a data security agreement. They're called different things under these different laws, but essentially they're passing down the chain, the obligation onto their vendor, and oftentimes their vendors' vendors. They're passing that obligation down to comply with a particular standard, whether it's mass law or, or California law or GDPR or, or HIPAA. And and so the contracts have built into them this this agreement and this obligation on on the part of the vendor or the vendors' vendors to comply with the, this law. And so you get a lot of of um, kind of down chain adoption of the law, even though these companies may not literally be be subject to it. And that's going to continue to be a drive for the next at least five years as well. So I mean, there's got to be a way that you know it seems like it's um, just the complication is going to be uh, I don't know a way to to punish all kinds of companies when they really may not have the resources to address it. So what's, I mean, what's your recommendation for companies to do? And not everyone, I mean, even if they wanted to, not everyone could hire you. I mean, what do people do? Uh, well, I think people do one of two things or perhaps one of three things. You know, uh, in, in years past, particularly um, the smaller entity that that either can't afford to do this or doesn't want to deal with it just signs the contract and and agrees to the obligation even though they might not be ready to comply with it. And that's that's not a good idea. It's a great idea for keeping business. It's a bad idea for, you know, for operating under your contracts. But I think most other companies are just starting to recognize that this is a function of business that they have to build into their own corporate structures. You know, it's a little bit like for those of us who have been around, were around when employment law changed about, you know, 20 years ago. And, um, you know, these these court decisions and statutes came out saying that companies had to have um, complex HR systems to deal with harassment and discrimination and complaints of harassment and discrimination. And there need to be needed to be training um, and systems in place to take complaints and deal with complaints without retaliation. And if you were around back in, you know, 20 years ago, this was a big change and companies thought, how are we ever going to do this? This is not what we do. And nowadays, you know, it's just routine. It's just a part of business. And security is starting to become the same way. Companies are looking at this and saying, hey, you know, we have to bring on a business manager who's going to make information security a part of their function or their you know, getting this to be a part of the function of their IT manager or our compliance manager or something like that. And so they're looking at this process and saying, you know, look, this is not going away. This is going to be part of business. Um, let's devote resources and time to it. Um, we're going to make our company uh, uh, a, a data secure company because uh, we need to for our vendors because it, it's a value add for our company, particularly if you're looking at um, selling it at, at any point in time down the line. Um, and so they're just looking at it and saying, look, we have to do this. Um, this is not going away. The, the reality is, you know, I think most, I think a lot of companies look at the data security compliance process 
and they say, oh, oh my, we don't understand that. Um, and, and, and they think it's going to be really expensive. It's going to be horrifically time consuming when the reality right. is it can be done. I mean, is it, does it take time? Absolutely. Is it, does it entail costs? Absolutely. But um, these are things that you can tackle over a time period of, of a year, two years, um, longer sometimes. Um, and so it, once you commit as a business to making security a part of your culture and you start chipping away at it, it just gets better. And so that's how you tackle it. Hmm. Any, any recommendations of best practices have not to have breaches in the first place? Are there any uh, you know, yeah, I mean, areas in particular that people target? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the top, there's a, I could probably rattle off the top 10 areas of breach, but, you know, number one is, is, is phishing and malware. Um, and, you know, so companies have to make sure that the, their workforces are trained to recognize phishing scams um, and to recognize um, how malware gets installed. They also need to do things like um, not just antivirus, anti-malware, because that's kind of yesterday's solution. But there are ways to um, scan and tag emails coming in, um, prevent employees from navigating to the to the internet for to for a website that might have malicious code. Um, ensure that that attachments are scanned on the way in. Um, so there's just there are ways to avoid phishing, um, both by virtue of training as well as technology. And you know, companies that's got to be number one on a company's list of to-dos mm. if if it is, if you've done nothing about about phishing. Um, I think you know probably the next biggest area of loss of data is still unencrypted devices, whether it's a laptop mm. or a mobile device. Um, and the solutions for that are not difficult. You know, there are readily available ways to encrypt a laptop, mostly using the operating systems that are installed. Same thing is true for right. mobile devices. Um, you know, there are readily available ways to encrypt a mobile device using the OS of, you know, that Apple provides or BlackBerry or, or Droid. Um, and there are really, really good apps to be used on mobile devices to keep corporate data secure. Um, so I think that's probably the second. And just to round it out with the top three, I think credential compromise is probably the third biggest area of compromise, particularly if you're talking about losing money um, as opposed to just losing information. And there, you know, there are great solutions for credential management, including password managers and you know, unified um, dual authentication systems and stuff like that. Um, so I think those are the big three. I mean, you'll notice that I didn't name hacking as one of the big three. You know, I think right. hacking is big. But look, the reality is if a sophisticated hacker wants to get into your system and they try hard enough at it, they are probably going to be able to get into your system, whether you're a law firm or an accounting firm or whether you're a big hospital or whether you're a defense contractor or the U.S. government for that matter. It's just going to happen. And are you going to lose data? Absolutely. Are there systems that you can put in place to detect the hacking and prevent it? Sure. But, um, you know, that's, 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 that's fruit that's hanging 20 feet off the ground. Plenty of companies have low hanging fruit that they can, that they can, um, they can address first, like, you know, phishing, encryption, credential, credential management, that type of stuff. Well, if Dave, if you do have a breach, when are you responsible? When are you not responsible? What can you do to, you know, to minimize the amount of, uh, lawsuits or pain or fines or things you'd have to yeah. endure if you had a problem? 
Yeah, so that that's a great question. Um, so I'm going to answer it two. I'm going to answer it three ways. Um, first of all, when when a company has a breach, when are you responsible for telling anybody about it, giving notice? Yeah, I was going to ask when you, you that. Yeah. That's that's number one. Number two, when are you really liable? When is there legal liability? And then number three, does it matter? Um, so. And obviously, number three is is probably the most important and what I want to talk the most about. But number one is you have an obligation to notify people in the event that under some sort of law, whether it's a state law, federal law, or international law, there's been a compromise of their protected information. And the most notable laws are things like the state laws that protect things like social security numbers, financial account numbers, password, governmental ID numbers. Those are the protected information under state law. There's federal laws that protect health information, financial information, international laws that protect personal information, uh, identifying information. So, so if that information is breached, you then have a notification obligation. Um, the reason why this is probably the least important is because managing risk is not a, just about following the law. Um, for instance, if a company has some sort of compromise um, and information was compromised like the name and address of your customers, the email addresses, other information about them that may or may not be subject to a notification law, you may decide as a company, you may decide to give notice anyway because this is how you avoid liability down the road. You tell people about it. Um, whether it's the state AGs or it's your customers, more likely it's going to be your customers because if that information gets out and your customers find out and you didn't tell them, it's never a good explanation to say, oh, well, I wasn't required to under the law because by and large, your constituents don't care about that. They, what they care is that you've done something to let them know that you had a breach and that, you, and that you're protecting right. them. So that's the notification piece. The, the liability piece, again – so I don't worry about customer lawsuits. I worry about regulatory lawsuits. I don't worry about customer lawsuits because if you have a breach, you can do so much to avoid the customer lawsuit. You give notification promptly. You offer credit monitoring. Maybe you offer um, uh, crime crime. Uh, reimbursement to the extent there's crime involved. Maybe you involve, um, maybe you offer your customers identity monitoring. Identity insurance right. can be purchased now in the event of a breach at relatively affordable costs. You set up call centers, email centers. You deal with your customers in a humane and kind way. All of this stuff goes a really long way to turn a problem of a data breach into an opportunity of letting your customers know or your vendors, whoever it is the information pertains to, letting them know you care about them, that you're going right. to own up to this breach. You're going to take responsibility. So I don't worry so much about the co consumer lawsuit because there's a lot you can do before you get there. And I can, I, luckily, I can say, knocking on wood here, that I've never handled a breach that resulted in a lawsuit. And I think that has a lot to do with how you handle the breach. Yeah, that's great. The regulatory, yeah, the regulatory piece is is harder because um, whenever you have a breach, um, one of the first things you're going to have to do is give notice to a state or federal regulator, and the regulators are going to come in. They're going to do an audit, um, and they're going to find the 16 things that the company is not doing 
that the regulator wishes the company did do, whether it caused a breach or not, is immaterial at that point in time. They're looking to assess fines and penalties. And these fines and penalties can be serious, really serious. Mm. So, you know, look, we do risk risk analysis to keep companies safe and to avoid breaches. In the event of a breach, that risk analysis goes to show the regulator that this company was really doing everything it could do and should do, and therefore the the fine and finer penalty should be uh, very low or non-existent. That's the argument in in, in a regulatory environment. Um, so, but that, that's what I worry about when it comes to, to uh breach response. Well, are the regulators just out to get anyone they can and take money for their coffers or, you know, what do you do? How do you defend well, against, think, uh, being put out of business? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, to be fair to the regulators, uh, some regulators or many regulators say that they're, they're in this business to make businesses safer, that they're, they're doing what they're doing to make businesses safer and to protect consumers. I, I think that that's true to an extent. I think many regulators are, are seeing this as a revenue generating opportunity, particularly when the regulators are dealing with an out of state entity. Um, and so I do think there's a revenue generation component of it. Um, and I think, you know, look, I think when you're dealing with a regulator as a company, your best defense is to a show the regulator that you took this seriously before the breach happened, that you, you, you really were serious about security. You had real measures in place. You did a risk assessment. You addressed your vulnerabilities. You trained people. You had policies. That's your best defense to essentially say to the regulator, look, we're a good company. We did everything we could, and we were a victim of breach because even this happens even to good companies. And then to say to the regulator, look, and we did everything that we um, should have done in response to the breach. We dealt with our consumers um, humanely and, and gave them the remedies that we should give them. And, you know, that's that's the best defense. If you don't have all of those ducks lined up, you have to do the best you can. Um, I've had plenty of breaches where the company had done really nothing by way of security beforehand. And the mm -hmm. best you can do is you deal with the breach humanely. Right after the breach happens, you you go through a risk assessment and you become a uh, stronger company, a company that, that does value security so that when the regulator does come a knock in, you can show that, um, you know, you took your medicine and uh, you've been better because of it. And, you know, hopefully you just you can negotiate something where the company comes out at the other end of the regulatory audit uh, without being too, diff too, too, too damaged. Well, what do you see has been happening? Have regulators just been crushing companies or, you know, do they, uh, are they lenient or is it, you know, is it all over the place? Uh, what have you seen? I think most regulators have a sense of leniency. I don't think regulators are looking to put good companies out of business. I think regulators are looking to punish companies that they feel have acted inappropriately. Um, I think, you know, Equifax would probably be a company that regulators would deem to have acted inappropriately. So I think that I think the regulators are looking to, to to deter certain conduct and 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 um, motivate certain other conduct by virtue of their their fines and penalties. And sometimes I think the fines and penalties regulators impose are too harsh. Um, I think sometimes that they don't take into account that many companies, particularly small and medium sized companies don't they just they don't have the awareness of yet 
what the best practices are for security. They don't have the resources, and these laws haven't been around long enough to allow companies the time necessary to put in place the measures that regulators would like to see. So, yeah, I, I think sometimes the, the, the fines and penalties can be too harsh. Um, and who, what, what agencies actually do the audit or the data breach um, get involved? So uh, it depends on which laws are involved, but uh, commonly you're going to uh, be involved with a state attorney general because the, they will be the regulatory arm for the state laws. Sometimes if you have health information, you will um, – You'll be involved with the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. Um, their enforcement arm is called the OCR, the Office of Compliance Review or Office of Civil, Civil Rights. Um, so sometimes you will have that. If, if you have an international law in effect, you could uh, be facing it regulation by any number of different bodies. For instance, GD, for GDPR, um, every EU state has a different enforcement authority. So um, personally, in, in the, particularly in this area of the country, many of my clients are really looking at seeing either the state of Massachusetts or New York or California. Those are the three most active states um, on the other side of a, of a regulatory audit. And then um, Canada and Europe is probably coming in in, in second now on, on the regulatory side. Okay. Well, very good. Maybe just a couple of words about the uh you know the process that you would put a company through to um, you know to evaluate to do a self examination of their practices. What's that like, and how, how much yeah, so does that take? This is always a uh, that is kind of the whole process of making your your company more data aware or data secure. It's always a four step process. Uh, and I will say at the outset that that this is not like um, there's no finish line to this process, unfortunately. Um, once you go through it once, it first of all, the first time you go through it, it tends to feel a bit like a marathon. But then once you go through it, you turn around and you do it again. And what felt like a marathon the first time feels more like a 10K run the second time and more like a 5K the third time. The more you do this, the better you are. And it is an iterative process. It is meant to be done once and then done again and done again. And by virtue of this whole iterative process, what you're doing is you are incorporating security into your culture, into your business operations, and you are raising the, the security awareness of your whole culture and your whole workforce. And that is, that if I had, if I could define a, a data security compliant company, the chief definition I would use is you have a workforce and a culture that is aware of and um, integrates security. So you get this by virtue of going through a four-step process. The first is the risk assessment that I talked about earlier, where you're identifying the information, following it through its, through its life cycles, um, looking for vulnerabilities or areas of noncompliance. And at the end of that risk assessment, um, there's a report or some sort of you know tally checklist um, that the company is going to work against, um, and it, you're going to the company's going to fix the vulnerabilities. Um, so that's step two. So the first is a risk assessment. Two is the vulner is fixing the vulnerabilities. Then the third step, which a lot of people know about, is you, you the company's going to adopt some sort of policy, whether it's a security policy under state law or federal law, or a privacy policy under these international laws like GDPR. There's a written document that says, "Hey, we do things the following way: X, Y, Z." 
And then the last, the last step, the fourth step, which is actually probably the second most important step um, after the assessment, the last step is training your workforce. Um, you have to tell people, hey, we have this policy. This is why we have this policy. This is what we do. This is what we expect of you. Because um, truly, um, the biggest vulnerabilities are always human vulnerabilities. Uh, so you got to train your people to recognize security issues. Um, but also, a trained workforce is your best protection too, because not only employees are, are employees on the front, not only are employees on the front line of breach, but they're also on the front line of preventing breach, seeing it before it happens, telling management about where the risks are and how breach might happen. So that that's the fourth step. And then, kind of once you do this the first time, you have a little lull afterwards, um, you know, and maybe two years after you do it. The first time you do it again, um, and as you can imagine, you see different issues. You start chipping away at the smaller stuff, um, and you know by the time you get done with this a third time, maybe five or six years after you did it the first time, your company is a lot different than it was. So that's what companies really need to do. Yep. Okay. So and right. what I say, a lot of companies ask me, how do I start? You just it's just like running any race. You you put one foot in front of the other. The first foot. The first step in this race is always just scheduling your risk assessment and getting that first thing done. All right. So for listeners, uh, you know, they know they need to get this done. What's the best way for them to, you know, contact you or, uh, you know, to get the risk assessment set up? Sure. So um, I work with, whenever I do this, I work with a team. The team involves the client and their business people, myself, and some sort of IT security person. It's either an internal person within the company, if they have the resources, or an outside firm. Um, I know a lot of them. uh, So if if, uh, clients don't have the internal resources, um, I can help provide it. So the best way to get a hold of me is, you know, give me a call on my cell phone or send me an email. My cell number is 603-289-6806, and my email is Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N dot Schilling, S-H-I-L-L-I-N-G, at McLean, M-C-L-A-N-E dot com. Um, I talk to people almost every day of the week about how to to, um, move through this process. That's great. Great. Well, Cameron, thanks for coming on the call, and uh, you know the info is super valuable and important. So I appreciate you being here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to your listeners. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence. 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.